Please turn with me to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, the whole chapter. Also in the first year of Darius the Mede, I, even I, stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do according to his will. And when he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not among his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted, even for others beside these. Also the king of the south shall become strong, as well as one of his princes, and he shall gain power over him and have dominion. His dominion shall be a great dominion. And at the end of some years they shall join forces, for the daughter of the king of the south shall go to the king of the north to make an agreement, and she shall not retain the power of her authority, and neither he nor his authority shall stand, but she shall be given up with those who brought her with him and who begot her, and with him who strengthened her in those times. But from a branch of her roots one shall arise in his place who shall come with an army into the fortress of the king of the north and deal with him and prevail. And he shall also carry their gods captive to Egypt with their princes and their precious articles of silver and gold, and he shall continue more years in the king of the north. Also the king of the north shall come to the kingdom of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. However, his son shall stir up strife and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one shall certainly come and overwhelm and pass through, and he shall return to his fortress and stir up strife. The king of the south shall be moved with rage and go out and fight with him, and the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, but the multitude shall be given into the hand of his enemy. When he has taken away the multitude, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cast down tens of thousands, but he will not prevail. For the king of the north will return and muster a multitude greater than the former, and shall certainly come at the end of some years with a great army of much equipment. On those times many shall rise up against the king of the south. Also violent men of your people shall exalt themselves in fulfillment of the vision, but they shall fall. So the king of the north shall come and build a siege mountain and take a fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not withstand him. Even his choice troops shall have no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall do according to his own will, and no one shall stand against him. He shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his power. He shall also set his face to enter with the strength of his whole kingdom, and upright ones with him. Thus shall he do. And he shall give him the daughter of women to destroy it, but she shall not stand with him nor be for him. After this he shall turn his face toward the coastlands, and shall take many. But a ruler shall bring the reproach against them to an end, and with the reproach removed he shall turn back on him. Then he shall turn his face toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and not be found. There shall arise in his place one who imposes taxes on the glorious kingdom, but within a few days he shall be destroyed, but not in anger or in battle. And in his place shall arise a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of royalty, he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. 
He shall enter peaceably even into the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacy shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so shall he do damage and return to his own land." At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyrus, Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. And forces shall be mustered by him. They shall defile the sanctuary fortress and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself against every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, for what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the god of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall exalt himself above them all. But in their place he shall honor a god of fortresses, and a god which his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain. At the time of the end of the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind, with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships, And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, and many countries shall be overthrown. But these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels." But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. This is your own inspired and errant word. And Lord, it is indeed magnificent in its detail and its scope and extent of the things that were yet to come in the time of Daniel. And we know, Lord, that they were fulfilled. 
And Lord, how we pray that you might enable us to understand. How we pray, Lord, that you'd open our minds and our hearts to receive the lessons that you'd have for us from these things. We know, Lord, that your word shall not return void, but accomplish the things that you intend for it. And so we pray, Lord, that this evening you would speak to your own people and do us good and help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we come now to Daniel chapter 11. And this chapter, I think, contains the greatest quantity of specific prophecy to be found in any single chapter in all of Holy Scripture. It gives a, a summary and at some points a very detailed account, indeed, of the Persian Empire, of Alexander the Great, of the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and uh, increasing detail, indeed, in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. You know, even starting in verse 2, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia, and the four shall be far richer than them all. By his strength, through his riches, he shall stir up against all the realm of Greece. And those were the remaining Persian empires, and sure enough, the fourth did indeed stir up against the realm of Greece. And then immediately thereafter was the rise of Alexander the Great, something that would be difficult indeed for anyone to conceive, the, the speed and the extent of his conquest, but absolutely explained here in advance in the Word of God. And so it goes on and on, reading like a, a transcript of history, minus only the names of these men and women. And we can only marvel at these things. But of course, if we know and believe that God created the universe out of absolutely nothing in the space of six days, then and know that he upholds all things by the word of his power, then it's not so amazing, is it? He, he knows every last thing. Everything that will ever happen, he knows. And it is only of his will, only of his determination, whether he wants to share that with us in advance or not. He can do so at any time he chooses. Well, the question is, why does God give us such things in his word? Because sometimes he did and sometimes he didn't. But what is the purpose in when he gives us such prophecy? What purpose does it serve? Well, we could begin by asking, why did God, God give Daniel that information? You know that this was all in, in answer to Daniel's prayers for understanding what purpose did it serve that Daniel would receive all of that information. Well, I'm going to read you a quote from Edwards. Uh, apologies for the, the long quote, but I think he, he, he captures it well. So listen to, to Calvin on this. We must now understand God's intention in thus informing his servant Daniel of future events. He was clearly unwilling to gratify a vain curiosity and he enlarged upon events necessary to be known, thus enabling the prophet not only privately to rely on God's grace through the manifestation of his care for his church, but also to exhort others to persevere in the faith. This chapter seems like a historical narrative under the form of an enigmatic description of events then future. The angel relates and places before his eyes occurrences yet to come. We gather from this very clearly how God spoke through his prophets and thus Daniel in his prophetic character alone is clear proof to us of God's peculiar favor toward the Israelites. Here the angel discusses not the general state of the world, but first the Persian kingdom, then the monarchy of Alexander, and afterwards the two kingdoms of Syria and Egypt. From this we clearly perceive how the whole discourse was directed to the faithful. 
God did not regard the welfare of other nations, but wished to benefit his church and principally to sustain the faithful under their approaching troubles. It was to assure them of God's never becoming forgetful of his covenant and of his soul moderating the convulsions then taking place throughout the world as to be ever protecting his people by his assistance. Because what was going to happen in those years to come? There were great convulsions, great revolutions, some of the greatest revolutions that have ever been, great upturnings of things, as we'll we'll note, of course, to prepare the way of Christ. These things were necessary. But among them, others was to be a great persecution against the Jewish people. And in the years to come, Daniel's people were going to face this terrible, terrible persecution And they, of course, were going to wonder how they should respond. And they were going to wonder where God was in all these things. But if they had these things written out in advance, precisely what was going to happen, even in some details, even that some people were going to compromise and sell out to Antiochus, is that going to make it more bearable to the people? Absolutely. That's the wonderful thing, that when God speaks to us, we are as children who are being calmed, as a child who, is, who doesn't know what's going on, is greatly anxious, and, then, and the father speaks to the child and explains what's going to happen bit by bit, perhaps even going to a, a, a doctor to get a, a jab or something like that, and a, a calming effect. It's still going to be painful, but there is a purpose to these things, and our father speaks to us and makes us to know them. Well, rather than going bit by bit through the fulfillment of these prophecies, I can just assure you that you can go to any commentary at all and see how each and every one of these things was fulfilled just perfectly in history. But let us look to the larger picture. How are these things to do, as it said in Second Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness? We say why it was profitable for Daniel. How, it is, how is it profitable to us? We say how it must have done great good to the Jews who lived in that time. How then is it going to do good for us? Well, the title of our sermon is God Gave Us Prophecy. And we have four reasons, four things by which we are to gain, we are to profit from them. The first is to validate Scripture The second is to complete revelation. The third is to comfort us. And the fourth is to teach us about himself. So it's to validate scripture, to complete revelation, to comfort us, and to teach us about himself. So first, one of the basic points, the basic reasons that God gives prophecy at various points is to validate scripture. There's not just one fulfilled prophecy, you know, in this chapter. As I say, there are dozens, dozens, given in sufficient detail so there could be no mistake as to whether or not they've been fulfilled. And as I previously mentioned, it is to the point that the unbelieving academic scholars use this as proof positive to say this book could not have been genuine because it is impossible. The depth and the the detail of these things said in advance, surely this is what they call prophecy ex eventu. Uh, written later after all these things that actually happen rather than genuine prophecy. It's impossible. Well, we, we, need, to, we need to be quite clear and tight in our thinking because it's either one of the, the, or the other, and it, there's no middle ground at all. It, it's, it's either one of those things or the other, and it's very much in style, not just in, in, in a small amount, but if it's, 
If it's genuine, it's an amazing thing. And, it, and if it's a fraud, it's, a unbel- it's, a, it's one of the greatest and most extensive and crazy frauds that have ever been foisted in the history of the world. So it's one of those two things. You see? What, I, what I'm saying is that if indeed this was a, a fraud, that somebody uh, claiming to be Daniel, living centuries and centuries after, you know, again, uh, uh, not, not just a little bit after Daniel, but centuries afterwards, after all these things had happened, had somehow been such a clever forger to weave all these things together and then, then to insert them somehow, unknowing, into the canon of Scripture so that it's going to be read in all the synagogues all at the same time. And no one notices. There's, there's no record of any controversy over these things. Suddenly it's just there. Well, I mean... That's to the extent that you, you have to say it's a miracle. There's no explanation. So you go from one miracle to the other without an explanation. Or you say this is inspired, inerrant scripture written by an almighty God who determined all those events and could easily write us the future of the next 10, 20, 100 years as if it were a newspaper, should, should he so choose. And he did at this point in history. And we need to understand that. And we need to have great confidence in Scripture as we see these things fulfilled. And we know the principle, don't we, of Deuteronomy 18. God doesn't want us to be without proof. God doesn't want us to be. Look, we don't, we don't look for external proof of Scripture, but Scripture has its own proof. We're not going to go around trying to prove Scripture by, by some sort of worldly arguments. But God has provided means by which we should surely know that these things are true and have confidence in this word. The principle is in Deuteronomy 18. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? He's saying, don't follow false prophets. Don't follow false revelation where people are claiming to be speaking for God and we should follow it. And then the people say, well, how should we know if that's the case? He says, you'll know. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. And so it is at every new step, every new epoch of the history of redemption, when God is doing a new thing, as in the time of, for instance, Moses and all the miracles that came then, and then also in the, the time of the prophets, And of course, in the time of Christ, the time of the apostles, every new stage of these things, the word of God is being validated by miracles. And we shouldn't ignore these things. We should should grasp onto these things and recognize, yes, God is validating his word. We have great confidence in it. Now, you may not have a problem with the word of God now, but what if if some reason or another Satan should come along and, and whisper suggestions in your heart? Uh, how are you going to stand? What, what, what equipment do you have at that moment to say, no, wait, hold on, this word is true. Well, he has given you the fulfilled prophecy as it has, for instance, in Daniel chapter 11. You say, no, this is, in fact, the word of God. And God has spoken these things. And it validates, of course, not only the book of Daniel, but of scripture as a whole. So the first thing is just to, to validate scripture, which is a very, very important end. Second, it's to complete the the record of Revelation. And I mean by that not the book of Revelation, but all of Revelation to explain to us what's happening. Because this time, which uh, the angel is explaining to Daniel, it seems to be a really busy time in world history, and, and it was. And there's a reason for that. 
Jonathan Edwards explains that this last period of Old Testament history seems to be remarkably distinguished from all the others by great revolutions among the nations of the earth to make way for the kingdom of Christ. The time was drawing near where Christ, the great king and savior of the world, was to come. Great and mighty were the changes that were brought in order to, to, uh, to, in order to, to bring it in. The way had been preparing for the coming of Christ from the fall through all the foregoing periods. But now the time drawing near, things began to ripen apace for his coming. And therefore divine providence now wrought uh, wonderfully. That's, that's the idea. So in this, this final section from the close of the Old Testament canon in the, say, the 6th century B.C. to the, uh, uh, until the time of Christ is a very, very busy time. And I think, wouldn't it be uh, wrong for us not to have any record of it in Scripture? Wouldn't it be a great miss? Wouldn't it be a great vacuum, a great hole, if nothing were said of it at all? Now, we don't have, in, in God's providence, a, a history uh, in the sense of that we have a history of the kings of Israel and their various going-ons during the monarchy, but we do have this summary form of prophecy of all that was going to happen. And so it's between these two things. You see that between the methods of, of histories and also of, of prophecy that we have a record of pretty much everything that has ever happened. We have some indication of all the major workings of history to be found in the work of scripture, in the words of scripture. At least any of these things that have any impingement on the people of God. So we have uh, the, the history of Scripture looking back to what's already happened, and then we have prophecy looking forward, and between these things we have it all. And, and right now that's the case. We, we don't have, of course, uh, Scripture history relating to the things that are happening now. It all comes under the general heading of the book of Revelation and other parts of the New Testament that tell us the things that are going to happen. There are very general things that we know that are going to happen until the end of the world. And therefore, we're not lost. Therefore, we're not wondering what we're now expecting. We're not expecting some other epoch. We know that the next major thing that's going to happen is the return of Christ. And that's what we look forward. Until then, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be persecutions. There are going to be trials and all the rest of these things. And there will be false Christ arising. But we know that the, when the end comes... It comes as a flood, and all the world shall see the return of the great king. Well, it completes Revelation by having these sections of prophecy. And by the way, of course, by way of uh, extrapolation, we know that all of human history is just as well known to God and in principles delivered to us. And sometimes it might be useful for you to imagine what if the Lord were to have written up he could have easily have done so, just such a precise summary of all events. But thirdly, I think it is to teach us about God. As we think again about the, the content of this chapter, and we think about uh, the amazing explanation of all these things. Uh, I'll just read a portion in verse 29. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Cyprus shall come up against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So shall he return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant, those who compromise. And forces shall be mustered by him and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifice and place there the abomination of desolation. Again, a description of Antiochus 
epiphanies. Well, what kind of God is required to do these things? Well, of course, we say an all-knowing God. He must know all things in order to be able to record all these things in advance. No man has possibly been able to do such things. But beyond that, an all-powerful God, because we know that God not merely does these things, or knows about these things, he actually does them. He brings them forward. Genesis 17.1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. He reminds us that he is almighty. He has the power to do all these things, and therefore we have confidence as we follow him. We, we, he's all-wise. It's not merely that a sequence of events happen that are not connected one with another. They're all interconnected, and they're they're wonderfully complex. They're amazingly complex. We we look in nature as God has created things. We look at at DNA. We look at the structure of proteins, and they're they're not uh, simple things. In fact, the more we know, the the more complex they were. I remember our textbooks in, in my childhood. It was all seemingly so very straightforward. And then we find out about the tertiary structure. And then we find out about the, all these so-called uh, sections, um, uh, dead sections of DNA that do nothing. We find out actually they do do things. And in fact, they iterate at, at a higher level than was previously imagined. And, and there's much and much more to be found out. Well, so much it is then for God's dealing with history. Because you think, don't you, all you have to do is think of any of the books or movies written about time travel. And you see that one person makes a little mistake here or there and messes everything else up. Well, it's true. Because the knock-on effects of, of any one event, are, are for us, are utterly unpredictable. We have no idea where, how those things are going to turn out. And things could turn out very, very differently given one little thing here or there. You know, Alexander the Great has an accident in childhood, and that's, that's the end of him. And, and all world history is utterly different. And, and there's tons of things that are said like that. Not just one event, but the interconnection of these things at the precise time, in this precise place, and sequence, and all the rest of it. Well, this is our God. He's that wise, you see. And it gives me great comfort to think about such a God. I, I am continually conscious of my lack of wisdom and we look at one another and we say yes we lack wisdom but our God he is so wise he is wise enough to prepare and to do all of these great things without fail without missing any little detail at all you know Isaiah twenty nine fourteen says but therefore behold I will again do a marvelous work among this people a marvelous work and a wonder For the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hidden. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For Shall the thing made say of him who made it, he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? No, the Lord wants us to know that he and his perfect wisdom are doing these great works, and we worship him in it. And I would say also that in, in this record that is given to us, it keeps things in perspective regarding that which is not God, meaning men, meaning rulers, meaning events. It relativizes what's going on in the world. Let me explain what I mean relativizes. The world is always seeking to relativize God by speaking of many gods. You see this in, for instance, RE curricula. Uh, many gods, many religions, as if our, the true God were just one of those. 
and without playing too important a role. And you relativize them, and, and, and therefore you, you undermine the priority and the prominence of the one you're seeking to relativize, because he's just one of many. Well, again, Daniel reminds us that it's just the opposite. Here you have this fast-moving blur. You have some of the most mighty and famous kings and emperors mentioned one after another. How many verses does Alexander the Great get in there? It's, it's just, you know, some random guy, and, and we move on to the next. You know what it does? It relativizes them. You know, they're, they're, they come, they go, they get a verse or two or three, and we move on to somebody else, and, and, and God remains. They live, they die, God continues on. And we should remember that. And all the events, all the people, all the, the rulers of this world, let's not be too afraid of them. Let's not be too anxious about what's going to happen. Let's not give them too great of an importance but let's remember them in the greater context of our great God. Well, fourthly, I would say also these things are here to comfort us. If they're here to, to validate Scripture, and it's certainly so, to complete the whole record of Revelation so that we have a, a framework for understanding world history, if they're there to comfort us uh, or uh, to, to teach us about himself, but it's also to comfort us. Because Daniel was obviously concerned about the future. This was the, you see how concerned he was. The, the aspects of the vision that were given to him were very troubling to him. We know uh, uh, way back, uh, you think of the situation with Abraham, that God actually let him know in advance what was going to happen in the time of Egypt. And he let him know in advance and so that all the people would know what's coming. But he also gave him more information than that to assure him and to comfort him and to say, but don't worry, I'm working in this, I will sustain your people in this, and I will bring them through on the other end. Well, well so it is here. God is comforting Daniel of these things. Beyond knowing something about God, we're being, there is the comfort of, of being reminded that God is in control of these things and is specifically working good things for his people that point that Calvin make, made, I think I want to reiterate, that he's not just giving us a world history lesson randomly. It is all specifically fitted to the people of God. It is, it is bespoke. It is, has its connection. The reason why Alexander gets this much is because that's, isn't, he's not going to be a big problem for the Jewish people. Antiochus Epiphanes is going to be a big problem, and therefore we get tons and tons of information about him. It's all fitted because God is concerned about his own peculiar covenant people in this world. And brothers and sisters, I want to say the same for you. When we think about God, yes, we should think about the one who rules the whole universe and has, has sovereign sway over every molecule, every subatomic particle, every animal, all the rest of it. Yes, we should think that. But we should think that he has a particular, much higher level concern, particularly loving concern, as a father towards us, his people. We, are, we Again, we're not just uh, creature X. Uh, we have a name before him. He knows us intimately, and he cares for us. And that's the message, isn't it, that's coming across. Please, Daniel, please, you people of Israel, do not think that God has forgotten about you in these great things that are happening. And when this horrible king comes against you and it seems like he's being allowed to just run Russia, do not think that God has forgotten. He, he saw this coming long time ago. In fact, he planned it to be. 
He has his own good reasons for doing this. He will sustain you in the midst of these things and is bringing great good, glory to himself, and great good to you, his people, through it. Be assured of these things. He cares very specifically for you. And we certainly see uh, the way that things are moving on in this chapter. You see the great progression. Of course, we know from the previous chapter that there's very clearly a spiritual battle going on, and so it is continued in this But all of this is setting the scene for the coming of the incarnate Son of God, for his great victory over Satan. These things are necessary in the plan of God, that one must have to happen after another. This sequence of events is necessary, and God's people are going to live through these things. But it's not meaningless. It's bringing forward the greatest and most important of events. It's leading to the final salvation of God's people. And so it is with us. And we should be comforted by his care and by the meaning of all these events. We are not forgotten by God. And the events that are happening in our days are not without meaning. We, of course, will know these things in far greater depth and detail in, in heaven, in eternity. But I think we can be utterly assured that all the things that happen are both necessary, they're not arbitrary, they have been wisely, they've been perfectly fitted together by an all-wise God to bring maximum glory to himself and maximum good to us as a people and as a church. And we should be comforted by that. Now the applications are brief and obvious. The first one is to worship this God. This is the God that we serve. He is unimaginably great. He is the one who has perfect sovereign rule over all of these empires. Though they they do not know him, they do not regard him, they do not acknowledge his existence. They may even strive against him with all. You think of Antiochus Epiphanes and how he hated the living God. And he sought to destroy the people of God and to desecrate the temple and all the rest of it. And he was a pawn in the hand of that very God. Not a single thing that he did was a part. Even before he was born, all these things were known and determined by the living God. We should worship such a God. He is unimaginably great. Secondly, I think we should pray in our time. Because I think things are moving on. That even that we, we, Let's not forget when we say that the next event is, is the return of Christ. And we must be thinking about the imminent return of Christ. Absolutely. But let's not forget that things do move on. That as long as the world remains, God is doing great things in building his church. And we don't look back in history and say that there are centuries and centuries of, of meaningless church history. Actually, we see that there is great significance at every point. The people themselves may not have seen it, but we see it in retrospect. And right now, God is moving forward with the work of redemption. I, I, can, I can assure you of that. And I think we live in exciting times. I alluded to it this morning, but we, have, we live in a, a day of great opportunity. There is a, a wonderful opportunity. And the uh, yes, yes, persecution is coming. Um, but we have every opportunity again to, to, to pray and to seek the Lord in these things and to see victories in it and to rebuild the ruins of the kingdom of God in this land and other parts of the world. We have every opportunity. And I think that the Lord is doing great things, in fact. So he's moving forward with this work of redemption. What should we do? We should be doing as Daniel has been doing, which is to be on his knees and to pray. 
We want to see these things accomplished. We want to see our God glorified. And we want to see the kingdom, the people of God, upheld in days of persecution and strengthened for the great work that lies ahead. Because both of those things were happening. At this time, there's a rebuilding of the wall. At this time, soon enough, the rebuilding of the temple, those things were happening with the people of God. And soon thereafter, there's going to be this great persecution. And those things happen in cycles, and we need to be strengthened for those things through the power of the Spirit. So we pray. And finally, we should not be anxious. Uh, If you think you've heard something about anxiety before, well, let me tell you, you're going to hear it again. I, I, I must say, I think that we struggle with anxiety, and that's why the prophecy was given in the first place, and surely we should be comforted by it. Daniel was anxious about what he saw. He saw some, some glimpse of what was happening. It, it was threatening. It was, it was something he wasn't looking forward to. Do you have something threatening, looming in your future? Do you have something you're not looking forward that you either suspect or know is going to be happening? I think all of us have something like that. And we have to say, don't be anxious. We have to believe that God puts his hand on our shoulder and says, yes, things will happen. Your history is written. I have it here in my book. And he does. And he could show it to you. But he, for his good reasons, doesn't do that. But he says, I know the plans that I have for you. And they're good ones. I know that I have good purposes for you. And you in eternity will see all these things. Don't be anxious. But rather, again, as was said to Daniel, but you go your way to the end. For you shall rest and arise to your inheritance at the end of days. We're reminded that we need not be overly troubled by these things. We see this great God. We worship him. We rely on him in prayer. And he will certainly bring to pass all of his wonderful plans. Let's just read from Jeremiah 17.7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Well, if there are days of drought to be had, we know that those who are planted by the rivers of water, those who receive the Holy Spirit and have the means of grace, God is giving these things to, they will not be anxious in the year of drought and they won't cease from yielding fruit. But rather, even in the toughest of times, there will remain fruitfulness because God upholds his people. Let us pray. Our great God, what can we say to the events that have, were given to Daniel so in advance of all this world history, except to say that you're a great God and we worship you. You know everything and you do all things. You can do absolutely everything and the wisdom and way, in the way in which you bring these things, no one can comprehend it. Well, Lord, we're thankful that we have such a God and that we are part of such a people, a people marvelously upheld by you throughout all of human history against the very worst that anyone and their power and their armies could possibly desire to destroy. They were not able to do so. But Lord, as you prophesied, you upheld them. And how we pray, Lord, that we ourselves would be faithful, we ourselves would be dependent upon you in prayer, and, Lord, that we would seek to, yes, to be used, to be faithful, but also to be used in the advancement of your kingdom in the exciting days of the remaining world history.
as you bring to completeness and perfection your own blood-bought church. Lord, we pray we would not be anxious, but rather, Lord, we would revel in your goodness and power and grace and mercy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.